Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifract. Today, oh my gosh, in the house, uh, legend, uh, someone I've looked up to for years, Steve Blank. Thank you for joining a short bio, and then uh, we'll get right into it. An array of questions for you. Steve's the founding member at the Gordian Knot Center, an adjunct professor at Stanford University, senior fellow for innovation at Columbia University, Steve consults for the National Security Establishment on innovation methods, processes, or if you're American, policy or processes, policies and doctrine. He created the curriculum for the National Science Foundation Innovation Corps at Stanford. He co-created the Department of Defense Hacking for Defense and Department of State Hacking for Diplomacy Curriculums. Now, his story starts in 1978 when Steve arrived in Silicon Valley at the very beginning of the startup boom, where he founded or was part of eight different ventures, some successful, maybe some not, Steve will chime in. His book, The Four Steps to the Epiphany, is credited with launching the lean startup movement, in which touted the principle that startups must operate differently from big companies to be successful. His follow-on book, The Startup Owner's Manual, described a process for turning ideas into scale and his Harvard Business Review cover story from I think 2013 redefined how large organizations can innovate at speed. In some, Mr. Blank, as I should be calling him, has changed how startups are built, how entrepreneurship is taught, how science is commercialized, and how companies and the government innovate. He's been described most appropriately as the father of modern entrepreneurship. Mr. Blank, Steve, my May, thank you. Lots to get to today. Uh, thanks for being here. Such, such an honor. Uh, we've only Dan, got. I, I don't think it's going to get better than the intro, so maybe we got to quit while it's ahead. <laughs> Just um, a little mic drop. We'll end it there. Now, for years, you've been envisioning a brighter future, and this uh, this show is called Leadership Now, and and so leaders can't get to a future unless they also simultaneously think about the now. And for, for me, you are what it seems to be the father of the startup playbook. So in today's society, what do you think founders are doing sort of positive or correct when it comes to their leadership now? And then what are they doing incredibly wrong? So no, not all founders are uh, Theranos in mind, right? Uh, behaving badly, but some do. So from your vantage point, your experience, what's going right today in leadership now and what maybe isn't? I think what's going right for startups uh, is what's always been right, is they tend to see over the horizon. Uh, that is, there is no status quo for a startup. There is no legacy. There are no customers. There are no um, kind of things you promised that you were going to deliver to existing customers. Uh, and so they're unburdened by actually having their revenue stream or, or Wall Street profit goals or, or end of quarter reporting. Right. Um, you know, that's what makes them uh, ability 100% of a startup is focused on innovation and, and high-speed delivery. Um, because even though, uh, you know, we used to have infinite cash for a couple of years, you still had a virtual gun to your head of um, limited resources and time or, or time to market, etc. Uh, where companies have, you know, smaller percentage of people focused on creating the new, most of them are focused on servicing the now. Mm -hmm. um, and companies have a different problem of, uh, you know, how do we not get stuck in the existing processes and procedures and OKRs and all the things we build to actually build scale? I mean, they're necessary to build a scalable organization, but pretty rapidly we lose sight about the creativity that actually got us to that point that, you know, that created scale. Um, and there are, you know, pretty some pretty known solutions of building ambidextrous organizations and 
building organizations that transform uh, uh, when faced with challenges. Um, but that is the notion of creative destruction in both startups and large companies is that, you know, if they go out of business, there will be someone else to take their place with either a better business model or or understanding a better understanding technology trends or, or shifts, whether it's a startup or, a, or another company. Um, and, and I think the difference is in the last, certainly in the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen that that rate of change just ever increasing. And I think we just literally in the last 90 days have seen one that's going to transform every business, large and small. Um, and, and of course, that's generative AI. Um, there must, you know, if, if you're a startup and you don't have AI in your like in your pitch deck, you're probably not even getting a meeting. And if you're a large company, um, an existing company with existing customers, um, there's someone about to put you out of business if it isn't going to be yourself about changing your business model, about how some of these technologies are actually going to change how you see customers, they see you, what do you do with the data you've collected and what you're going to collect, et cetera. Um, I think those changes are as profound as I've been long, around long enough to see the beginning of the microprocessor and the beginning of the PC business. I think it's the sum of those maybe all within two years. Mm. Um, so I'll stop babbling. What was your question? Uh, <laughs> well, I think what you've, you've you've touched on is this notion that we we must, and you've written and spoken about this many times. We must sort of quote get out of the office, look around, and not be stuck in our old ways. We have to embrace change. And your point about generative AI over the past, you know, what it seems to be a rapid ascent over the past ninety days or so. You're also worried, however, uh, and whether that's not embracing the change like a generative AI piece. Uh, you're worried about things like, you know, the the propensity and proclivity for AI to um, not only from Goldman Sachs prediction, right, of 300 lost million, 300 million lost jobs, but this sort of destruction of society uh, writ large. So what are we as leaders not thinking about if you're so worried from a generative AI perspective and what's going on in the business? Well, you, you know, if I was a leader in an existing company, I'd be thinking about a, what could it do for you and what could a competitor do against you? Mm. Um, you know, about customers, about channel, about uh, the supply chain, about all these things. And, and the good news is in a large company, we have tools for transformation. I mean, we kind of know that, you know, transformation, typically you think about four pieces is, you know, leadership, you know, talent and people and support processes and then running those innovation processes, whether it was the last thing was digital transformation. And now I think we're all going to go through an AI transformation top to bottom. And then how do you run those parallel efforts? It's, I kind of consider the the problem is how do you spin all those plates simultaneously? That is leadership. I have uh, multiple transformation efforts in large organizations I see is leadership gets it. The innovators on the bottom get it. The frozen middle goes, well, this will, this too will pass, and and we don't really change anything because the senior C-suite believes they sent out two memos, and therefore the company will follow. Um, and the larger the company, I don't have to tell your listeners, the harder it is to kind of uh, move that ship because it's kind of new, like Newton's second law: an object in motion continues in motion un until hit uh, on the side of the head by a two by four. That's kind of the the corporate transformation version of that. And then how do you change all the support processes, meaning, you know, supply chain, legal, you know, branding, et cetera, that have been set up to protect the core. And, and now you have 
people who want to transform that and how do you not put your existing business at risk? Uh, so besides those classic, how do I do corporate transformation and in every large consulting firm from McKinsey on down will be happy to come in and, and now tell you yet again, you know, AI is, I think I'd be, I, I guess I just dawned on me, I'd probably be buying consulting firm stock because that's probably going to be the biggest um, uh, recipient of, of some of these dollars in, in corporations because people are going to have to figure out how to yet again, replumb their organizations to deal with those kinds of changes. Um, at the same time, you know, Tushman and O'Reilly uh, uh, with this whole notion of ambidextrous organization also has a model on, on how you kind of protect the core, but also how you run disruption in parallel. Mm. Uh, you know, the best example, I think, in the corporate world for that is how do you do operational excellence and how do you do crazy innovation at scale? People don't think about it, but it's SpaceX. Uh, for most of your viewers are, are familiar with SpaceX. Well, they're launching out of three launch pads, two in Cape, uh, Cape Canaveral, one in Vandenberg in California, an average every four and a half days, a rocket into space. And that execution needs to be as pristine as anything that people who deal with customers probably in the world. You can't, you can't, afford, there, there is no, like, we kind of got it right. It either gets into orbit or not. And if there are human beings on top, we have lives at stake. And, and so those people who are on that side of SpaceX are, excuse the phrase, but are anal retentive for all the right reasons. But there's another half of SpaceX that are run by crazy people. Um, and these are the people building the next generation called of rockets called Starship. And Elon's charter to them is if you're not blowing things up, you're not innovating. And then he says the next sentence, if you're not blowing things up fast enough, you're not innovating fast enough. So you have one half of the company that's incredibly risk averse, will take zero risks, um, and is but another half the company where it's it's not risks, it's learning and discovery as, as rapidly as possible. And the last part of this is that they're not silos. They actually have horizontal connections of the people who are doing the operational excellence of launching rockets every four and a half days are teaching the new rocket designers, here's where the ground service equipment ought to plug in. Gee, we got this wrong. I wish we could have fixed this 10 years ago. And the, the guys building the new things are actually teaching the existing guys, you know, when no one's looking, you could actually crank up that chamber pressure by another 100 pounds per square inch or whatever. And in fact, they've gotten another 1,000 pounds of payload to space because they made these tiny incremental tweaks that were actually test bedded on the guys who were blowing things up. I use that as an example of large companies can do this at scale, and a good number of them do. Um, you you protect the core, and and some people call these moonshots, but they're not random events. They're actually tied that eventually the thing that's run by the crazy people will eventually move from the edges into the core, and that is a plan, not just a not just a hope. I don't know if any of that was relevant to to your listeners, but but I think we're going to have to deal with this now with them much much faster cadence than we had to do anything in the last 10 or 15 years. I think this is just like when the internet hit companies, the, and you know, does anybody remember Blockbuster or does anybody remember Barnes and Nobles or sets of bookstores or, you know, a whole set of things that, um, that literally got disrupted because the incumbents who owned the business thought it would last forever and did not transform at the, at the right rate of speed. Um, it wasn't that they had a bad business model. Their business model was simply obsoleted. 
Yeah, Kodak, BlackBerry slash Research Motion come to mind, right? I mean, there they were having the patent in the Kodak example of digital photography. And there was in the face of uh, Jim Balsizi and Mike Lazaridis at RIM, the idea of having a camera and a phone and just, you know, eye off the ball and just looking into myopia of themselves or like they became bureaucratic. Would you would you agree? Well, it's the again, it's the curse of of being an incumbent, right? It's um, um, it's the curse of Steve Ballmer when he was president of Microsoft. He he had the best numbers on the street of anybody. I mean, Microsoft stock tripled, their profits tripled, or whatever, and he happened to miss every innovation in the 21st century. He missed mobile, you know, missed search, missed all this stuff. And it wasn't that there were smart people at, at Microsoft who weren't working on this. They were, but their focus was on the Windows monopoly. And sometimes when you're a monopolist or duopolist, et cetera, you think that lasts forever. Go ask Google what they're feeling right now. Um, <laughs> when 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 all of a sudden they could absolutely see their lead disappearing because people might be doing search quite differently, literally within the next 18 months. Um, sometimes those folks, you know, figure out how to do transformation themselves. Microsoft's comeback in the in the last five years under the new CEO is nothing more than uh, amazing and and uh, but take a look what happened to IBM when I was a a young engineer in the 1980s no one thought IBM was ever going to go away and literally within 10 years it's it's still around but not the fearsome you know owned the entire computing market uh, company that it was uh, so so leadership is ephemeral in in corporations and the thing that uh, took me a while to figure out when I was young was that companies go on that traditional arc, right? They're originally startups, then they kind of grow. And and if they don't, if they don't figure out how to do these series of transformations, and again, Apple before and then after and then during Steve Jobs is a great example of it was yeah. Apple Computer that was kind of you know four percent market share, and Steve just literally did transformation after transformation all within the span of less than 10 years and reinvented the company every time. It wasn't just the iPhone. It was the app store. It was the iPod. It was all the, the, the services business, et cetera. Um, that's what companies who last for multiple decades end up doing. Um, and, and that's kind of hard when in fact, you know, you're in a current business where you're just simply printing money and profits. And then all of a sudden you realize you don't even have the corporate DNA um, because all those crazy people left because it wasn't a very interesting place for them. doesn't mean it was a bad company. It meant that wasn't their home. And so now do you acquire? Do you acquire? Do you, you know, um, acquire other talent or, or do you figure out how to grow it internally? Uh, those are real challenges for a CEO in a, in a, in a business that needs to be transformed. And, and as I said, as the preamble, Man, in the last 90 days, it's at least my conclusion is there isn't a business around the world that isn't going to be hit with uh, some major transformations. Mm -hmm. So if I could touch on something that you haven't discussed yet, but I think relates to some of this, and that is, you know, especially when you're talking about your, you know, your former interns world at SpaceX and Musk, and you've got the crazies and uh, handholders, if you will, or the, the tepid folks, you know, in many organizations, you have culture of cultures. And however, you know, you've got the Department of Finance or, you know, the CFO who's controlling purse strings often. 
And so you have cost efficiency planning or efficiency uh, thinking versus effective thinking. And so you've got the do more with less people versus the people who want to innovate and say, look, you know, if you don't think about, let's say, Kodak digital photography, our lunch is going to be eaten despite the fact we have 90% market share in film and camera. So you've got CFOs in this culture of fear, do more with less uh, efficiency mindset. Tell me a bit about how you advise and teach and consult and sort of get people thinking, uh, appreciating almost empathetically both sides to come at it from, you know, a perhaps better view going forward. Well, one of the things I remind uh, leadership is that, uh, you know, execution pays your salary, but innovation will pay your pension. Um, <laughs> that's good. And I mean, literally, if you just take 30 seconds to think about it, that's not just a glib line. That actually yeah. is why companies last more than a decade. And in fact, if all you want to do is squeeze profits for the next couple of quarters, just go ignore whatever is going to happen. Because then, you know, write the traditional note in an envelope you put in the desk for your successor, which says prepare another note for your successor. I mean, um, so so it really takes a C-level or sometimes a board level conversation is, you know, is the status quo still sufficient? And if not. What do we need to do to start being ambidextrous again? As I said, it, it requires every large company, every organization has innovators at the bottom, you know, banging their heads against the wall against an organization that is designed for execution. What this really takes is transformation from the top from the leadership that says, okay, this is a serious corporate effort. We're going to have to change support processes. We're going to have to build innovation pipelines. We're going to have to train our people to both execute and innovate. We're going to have to have, and by the way, my ultimate test of for CEOs who say, oh, we have innovation processes, come look at our beanbag chairs and our incubator, and we have great coffee cups and posters. The first thing I ask is, have you changed the incentive plans for any of your middle managers? Yeah. I mean, literally, that's the first diagnostic. And they look at, well, we've sent the memo out. <laughs> no, no, no. Your, your, your existing folks have been like, They've been coming to work with the same job spec, with the same, here's how I do my job, here's how I get incented, this is my promotion and bonus plan and whatever. And if you haven't changed any of that to at least incent different types of work or incented any of them to incent innovation programs, then you then what, what's the surprise? Um, and again, I'm, I'm only barely being glib here, but there are a couple of diagnostics you could just go in and ask about, well, what have you changed on the people processes to get the rest of the company moving? And what have you changed in organization design? And by the way, if the same leadership, <laughs> one level down, is the same leadership you had five years ago, you can almost set your watch about shorting your stock. Um, you, you don't you don't have the same people in a crisis or transformation <clears throat> in all levels of the company that in in innovation than you did when you had an execution organization. And again, these are these are just point uh, data points on what a top to bottom transformation effort really looks like. As I said, it, there's four, for me, four lines of effort. There's leadership, uh, there's support processes, there's the innovation processes, there's the people, and then it's all coordinated by some form of a, transform, a transformation office that kind of manages metrics and statistics and responsible for training all that stuff. Uh, but it's not just a set of memos or or what I call innovation point activities. I have an incubator in my company. 
well, that's fine. How, how much of that stuff has actually gotten to be delivered through your channel and, and what's its impact on revenue and profit? Well, let me show you another demo. Uh, well, no. Um, or, you know, or gee, we won so-and-so award. Well, that's nice. You know, show me the things in the hands of the sales force that didn't exist 18 months ago. Well, you know, our, our pipeline process, uh, it, uh, again, things that make sense when you're the market leader in the, you know, in a stable industry are actually um, your adversaries. All that legacy process doesn't need to go away, but needs to, in fact, work in parallel with innovation processes that are uh, are taking risks or running experiments with a goal to deliver things with speed and urgency. And that's a big idea. So how do we run things in parallel that don't break the core? <laughs> like we got we got an engine that's making us money, but how do we transition the core from the edge back in? I don't want to put an answer into your uh, mouth, but I do think that you've written before about how uh, the advocacy or your advocacy of having wisdom in the room with leaders and in the alignment to specifically leaders surrounding themselves with uh, pros who have experience. So tell me a bit about how you see that as a as an alignment piece to ensuring that you are growing, innovating and not being, quote, the smartest person in the room. So help me understand which, which kind of uh, experienced people. Well, you're, you've you've advocated that an, a leader, CEO, C-suite, somewhere it doesn't really matter, should have a great alignment with other wisdom, not just themselves. Like it could be external, it could be internal, it could be both. But tell us the how you see and why it's so important for leaders to specifically surround themselves with seasoned, experienced people, and why. So, so you know, leaders of large organizations are uh, historically, if they're not the founders of the company, and I want to make the exceptions of the Bezos or the Reed Hastings or the Elon Musk, that is the founders who are now uh, running large corporations, there really is something to learn if you're a non-founder who have taken over or running a large execution organization. Yeah. And that is your skill set tends to be finance, marketing, sales, how to build repeatable and scalable processes. And, and those work fine when the world around you is the world you knew and the world you learned in business school 10, 15 years ago. You know, I remind my students who have left that everything you learned in business school older than 10 years ago is obsolete except for maybe accounting. Um, and and I, that also isn't completely facetious. Um the, the tools of innovation and the things that are coming down the pike were probably not in your core classes that you've taken. And it's not, again, if you're a C-level exec, it's, it's not that you are not seeing them, but that isn't what you're living. But there are people around you, inside your company, et cetera, that if you're going to deal with these transformations, you need a number two um, on your side who truly understand innovation models, innovation pipelines, innovation processes, transformation processes um, that are as important as the execution processes you've put in place. Um, and as I said, there are great consulting firms that come in and, and help you do this. But, but the danger is, and I've seen this multiple times, is that you hire a firm to do this but you don't quite understand why they're building a matrix organization or why they're standing up a, you know, a moonshot factory or whatever. Yep. Um, you know, it's almost like when I tell startup founders, if you're hiring a consultant to do something for you, you might as well go out of business. What you want to hire a consultant for is teach you what they know 
So in fact, it becomes your knowledge, and I'd pay them double for that. Is don't send somebody to Japan to to, to set up your job. Have somebody take you to Japan and teach you how to do business in in Japan. That's quite different from the same is true in a large corporation. If this is the first time you're going through a transformation, for God's sake, don't just outsource all this to a consulting firm. Doesn't mean don't hire one. They're world-class ones. But get in people who will teach you what this means and why they're suggesting to make these types of organizational changes because you need to have that fingertip feel yourself or you will just be writing seven and eight-digit checks for things that may or may not work for your company with your people and your culture. Um, And uh, I want to emphasize culture. None of this works without leadership and people who want to follow that leader with a clearly articulated path with pretty concrete goals and a, and a vision that matches. Um, people will do some extraordinary things if leadership is clear about the why and the how and where we want to go to, you know, everything from we put men on the moon because it was absolutely clear. If your uh, viewers haven't Googled uh, John Kennedy's speech, speech at Rice University in 1962, in one speech, he articulated why we were going to spend $40 billion to put two men on the moon and within the decade. It was a, that was it. And he did it in less than probably 12 minutes. Um, if he could do that for the entire country, a CEO should be able to articulate the rationale why, what the goal is, and how we're going to go do it, and then bring in help um, and surround themselves with the people necessary to do that, understanding what the framework is and understanding what the culture is and understanding how to motivate his specific uh, men and women in that company um, who want to actually do something different than they've done before. Um, And we've seen companies, we know companies that, you know, people will do anything for that leaders because they're aligned with the leadership. It's not just a job. um, It's a calling. Mm-hmm. And if you can actually change transformation from, oh, it's one other, one more reorg, other, instead it's no, we're all aligned to the mission. Oh, you have a much better shot about being the survivor of whatever transformation is happening in your industry. Not because it's hard, but because we can. Now, um, one of my favorites from you is actually your points about failure. And what I instruct, whether my students or my clients, is that we should be harvesting the value of mistakes so we can iterate and learn from. So what's your your take today, Steve, on sort of our culture of failure? Do we have one in the sense of like being able to learn from what we do wrong? Or are we, you know, covering our tracks for fear of reprimand and thus the culture that you speak of isn't one that is inducing uh, this ability to create and to actually be allowed to fail? Tell me your thoughts on that. That's a great question, because in a startup, I think it's pretty well understood that this whole lean methodology, this word pivot that is making substantive changes when you get new data, instead of following a plan to the end of the cliff, you go, well, wait a minute, we have data that says there's a cliff there, perhaps we don't want to drive over it. And in the old days, we would literally drive over it because the plan said go straight. Right. Um, And so in, in a startup, it's pretty clear this methodology of lean and this culture says, you know, if in fact you're learning from the failures, learning and discovery, and you do um, you do those failures with what are called minimum viable products, instead of building the entire factory, spending $300 million to outfit it before you discover that there are no customers, you build prototypes, put them in front of customers, realize you need something different and change the product and sometimes change the customers. Again, those are called pivots and you use this notion of MVPs. That's integral to a startup. 
But what happens in a company is you might have done that on day one and that you were successful. You found what was called product market fit. You had the right product with the right features for the right customers. And now you're in execution mode. Yeah. You're building with a factory. You're turning the crank. You've got salespeople who could sell off the price list. They don't need to be creative. Here it is. They need to be skilled at selling, but that's or your website or you have influencers and whatever it is. And you've forgotten that culture of learning and discovery. And in fact, if you're a head of sales that comes into a company that has found execution, uh, repeatability and scalability, and you screw up, yeah, you deserve to be fired because there was a known process. There were a series of knowns. So failure in execution is failure. Yeah. But failure in learning and discovery is very different. Got but you. that's never articulated in a large company. Are we executing knowns and you screw that up? Yeah, you failed. But are we learning new things or trying to start new divisions? And the problem is, is that in companies, it's very hard to separate out execution processes from searching their learning and discovery, searching for business model processes. And when you try to run them in the same division, so for example, if I have an existing engineering group or an existing functional division, uh, uh, a division that's a product line division, it's very hard to run execution and innovation in there simultaneously because the cultures just tend to conflict. That's why you tend to make these ambidextrous organizations uh, where you spin out some of these things internally so you could run different cultures at different speeds with things blowing up, but not blowing up your existing customer base or, or putting the core at what I call putting the core at risk. Did, did that help? Oh my gosh, such a great delineation, which then sprung another question, which potentially relates. And that's the argument that, you know, for much of the 20th century, you know, we've had venture capital and societal interests align, right? And so, you know, kind of like your idea of, of uh, failure and execution is failure. It's a no, no, why the hell are we failing that? But if we're innovating and trying to uh, co-create and ideate something, okay, cool. But um, it's okay to fail is my point. We, we've been back to the question. We've been so aligned that most of those investments tended to be, I would just say ethical, maybe purpose-driven without actually saying the term purpose-driven. But it feels like these days that it's been decoupled. And Steve, my question for you is, okay, so VCs are unregulated, fine. Um, they're designed to optimize investor returns. Okay, I can believe that. But then when the when the board or the C-suite are involved in that short-termism thinking or uh, you know the maximization of shareholder return thinking, I, they're almost, in my opinion, culprits to that, well, we can't fail. We're only going to like focus on EBITDA. So tell me a bit about business, climate, society, and the interrelationship between that these days and your views on that, well, what's the future of the organization uh, question? You use the word culprits. I like to use the word unindicted culprits for now. <laughs> Um, okay, you know, I'll take, I'll take you know, it. The, the day there's a perp walk um, with a uh, with a VC firm uh, who invested in some of these unethical things, well, we might see a change in culture. But I think you nailed it. Is that um, you know in the 21st century, uh, you know, uh, given the, I don't even know if we, the SEC is still around. I mean, there are Ooh. you know FEC, SEC, F, FTC, you know. All the things that used to have some regulatory uh, control over public and, and sometimes even private companies um, have been so demonized that uh, for all the interest who didn't want regulation, you got VCs be able to go home and look their children in the eye and invest in Juul um, or, you know, 
yeah, I mean, that's venture backed and, and no one shames them on the street, you know, uh, or Facebook, you know, yeah, you know, do no evil, you know, maybe or Google do no evil when they began. But I tell my students, it's, you know, working for Facebook now is, uh, you know, like going to work for the manufacturers of Oxycontin. I mean, wow. um, you, you know, like now that we know the harm of social media, why would you go do that other than all you can think about? That's the only way you can make some money. And that's a at least schools I teach in that that means you probably should have failed your classes. Um, so, so the the problem is both society and uh, and the regulatory infrastructure of the United States have changed as well as uh, uh, this notion of shame has kind of disappeared from venture capitals. Uh, th th that's the bad news. The good news is what I never thought would happen is the U.S. in the last two years has uh, rediscovered national industrial policy. Um, meaning uh, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, has mm. actually put the government's thumb on where we're going to put some serious dollars and or serious tax breaks and for investors. That has actually encouraged uh, things that are good for society, bringing semiconductors uh, uh, manufacturing back to the U.S. People think of it as jobs and good to have. It actually might actually deter a war um, if we could get as much semis out of Taiwan as as we can. Um, we now have battery being, batteries being manufactured in the U.S. because of incentives, et cetera. The other thing is the for the Department of Defense, they finally have woken up. It's one of the reasons we started the center at the Gordian Knott Center for National Security Innovation at Stanford is our view that um, um, commercial technology and the DOD have just not met each other yet. Um, you know, the Department of Defense used to own all the advanced technology they needed to deter winter war, whether it was semiconductors or or biotech or autonomy, meaning drones or, or something else or access to space, all used to come from what are called their federally funded research and development labs or the military labs or the prime contractors. And now, you know, I have students who build better AI systems than some of the primes I've seen. Uh, and so it's not that people are dumb. It's just that these ecosystems haven't connected since the 1960s and um, getting the Department of Defense to get out of their building, which a good number of them don't have windows, is really a difficult task because they've been um, they've been very comfortable that the most advanced technology kind of existed in their own little circle of, of knowledge. And it's just simply no longer true. The only thing that DOD owns probably uh, is the prime contractors know how to integrate complex things at scale better than anybody. No startup is going to do that for a long time. And they own hypersonics and nuclear weapons. And if it was up to Elon, he'd probably own the nukes. Um, but on, And they own what are called exquisite, you know, sensors and kinetic things. But but all that other technology, as I said, I, it's not just Silicon Valley. It's the, you know, the whole world of innovation and half of it exists in China. Um, and for the Department of Defense and national security, that's a problem. Uh, I don't know if I I don't know if I answered your question. Oh, you did. I mean, it was, uh, as always, uh, fascinating insight. You go deep and find a way in which to connect a dot from the question I asked, right, about uh, about that particular. So I, I've got two more. You've been kind with your time. Uh, one is um, you've, you've published a rather beautiful line, uh, both of us being authors. So I want to read you the line and then ask you a question about it. So the line is, the measure of a life is not time. It's the impact you make serving God, your family, community, and country. But this is what's important here, I think. Your report card is whether the world is a better place. 
So Steve, what grade are you giving, generally speaking, leaders in this year 2023 when it comes to making the world a better place? You know, it's uh, it, it, the grades are un, unevenly distributed. Um, you know, if you look at our politicians, we're in a time that looks a lot like the 1880s and 1890s in the United States. Um, you know, it was a pretty miserable time in the U.S. We did ethnic cleansing. We did all kinds of uh, things that we now kind of look fondly back with a gauzy thing of, you know, uh, most Americans don't even know their history from the end of the Civil War to maybe the beginning of the 20th century. So in, in context of, of history, you know, it, it's bad, but it's been worse. Um, are there people doing wonderful stuff of, you know, NGOs, nonprofits, um, you know, people who see the future and want to make it a, the country and the world a better place? Sure. Um, uh, I, I think um, I think the other problem is, is that um, when we've not regulated media in the United States, we it's the same thing about, you know, we go to the lowest common denominator without any regulation. Uh, it's the a lot of the media is the jewel of, of media. I pick on jewel because I think it did massive harm to teenagers and made yeah. investments on money. I think a lot of the the media we have is works on the same principle as it doesn't matter. We've figured out what the equivalent of the media drug is to get people engaged on bad news or, or, you know, permanent outrage is a way to get people addicted. Um, and that's not healthy for a country, uh, but they're, at least in this country there, we, we, we've kind of figured out that uh, no one will uh, take the chance of regulating it because people will spend the dollars that they're making to, to stop people from regulating it. So I don't know if I answered your question. I, I'm, I am hopeful. I teach students, uh, I think, much like you do, and, and see uh, how passionate they are about uh, doing something important, whether it's for profit or nonprofit. And um, I don't see them wallowing in despair. I, I see them, again, entering the world with uh, with not only hope, but uh, confidence that they could change the world. And that should give us all, all a lot of hope, is that some of them will. Um, we just don't know which ones they are. So I pass all of them. <laughs> Excellent. Well, speaking of that, last question. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm laughing already because uh, there's a second follow up to it. Uh, who's your favorite, Eric Reese or Alex Osterwalder? <laughs> I'm just kidding. What have those two meant to you ultimately? Because they certainly look up to you. They're they're friends of the show, of course. Well, if you think about it, um, the lean methodology, at least as I teach it, is you know. I kind of started the first piece, which was customer discovery, but then it was Eric who said, Eric was the first practitioner of this, and his observation immediately was Steve. Yeah. You know, customer discovery belongs paired with agile engineering. And while he didn't invent it, he was the first one to take advantage of it. And he said, you grew up in a world of waterfall, which is a series of, of engineering steps. And he grew up in a world that was just discovering agile. Why don't we pair them together? Yeah. And then... Uh, when I started teaching this stuff at Stanford, I was struggling with how do I put it all in context? And one of my teaching assistants, who's now a, a co-founder of uh, Floodgate and Mira Co, um, said, hey, I found this book you ought to read. And I had been reading literature trying to figure out who's best described something rather than a business, business plan. I said, well, first you got to read this PhD thesis. And she said, no, you got to read this book. And we passed it across each other. And I had handed her Osterwalder's PhD thesis and she had handed <laughs> his 
his first book, Business Model Generation. And then we realized we just need to, needed to adopt the business model canvas. And then Lean became customer development, agile engineering, and the business model canvas to keep track of, of all the moving parts. Then we're at least 80% of the moving parts you need to think about when you're transforming a business. Um, so between the three of us, I think we created the form of what we would can honestly call modern on entrepreneurship in the 21st century. Um, and, and I remind folks that uh, that academics have been writing about these pieces for years. And and I think the value all three of us brought, uh, Reese and Oscar Boulder and Blank, was not that we invented this stuff. Is number one, this was best practices that people were doing anyway. They just didn't have the words to describe it. And two is... It was stuff that uh, you could probably dig through all the academic papers in the 20th century and find out that, yeah, they were publishing all the stuff in journals that no practitioner ever read or will read. Um, so it wasn't like we were the smartest people on the planet. We were the people who actually created tool sets that normal human beings who were, who were trying to build and run companies could go uh, go use. And I think it's been an interesting run. I, I will close to say, I think the run of lean is over. Um and I think uh, uh, at least I could sketch out on a whiteboard how today and, and for sure within 12 months that a good chunk of AI tools will kind of replace that human-centered model of uh, of customer discovery, agile engineering, and, and business model generation with a set of tool set that could probably do 100x better than a single person. Um, and so it's going to be an interesting ride for everybody. Well, you've been prescient before, and if you leave us with that uh, set of prescient observation, then uh, can't wait to see if that works out well for all of us, sir. Uh, <laughs> you're a uh, you're a prolific writer, a prolific thinker. Where can we find out more about uh, the great Steve Blank? I write on steveblank.com. There's a you know a variety of topics depending on on the weather and and uh, what the interest is of this week. Um, and I uh, teach full time now at Stanford in both the engineering school and and uh, national policy. Well, you're a legend uh, by all stretches and imagination. Thank you for everything you've done and what you continue to do. Uh, this is such a thrill for me, I must say. Uh, once again, thank you, Mr. Blank. All right, thanks for having me, Dan. All right, everyone, another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today in the house, the one, the only Steve Blank. Look for more at steveblank.com.